Our vision is a world without barriers for every deaf child, with a particular focus on these social and educational barriers that hold deaf children back. And deafness isn't a learning difficulty, so there's absolutely no reason why deaf children shouldn't succeed just in the same way as their peers do. Welcome to Season 2 of the Charity CEO Podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders. This is the show that gets beneath the surface of issues, engaging in meaningful and inspirational conversations with leaders from across the sector. I'm Livia O'Connor, and each episode I will be interviewing a charity leader who will share with us their insights, knowledge and topical expertise on challenges facing our sector in these turbulent times. This show is for everyone who cares about the important work of charities. Susan Daniels is the Chief Executive of the National Deaf Children's Society. As a leader who describes being deaf as her superpower, Susan has led the organisation for the past 28 years and has been instrumental in establishing it as the UK's leading charity for deaf children. Susan is adamant in her conviction that a deaf child can do and achieve anything that a child with hearing can, and that, as a society, it is our job to remove the social, cultural and educational barriers that hold deaf and disabled children back. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. It's so lovely to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Divya. It's great to be with you. So let's kick off with our icebreaker round. I have five questions for you, and if you're ready, we can get started. Yeah, excellent. Looking forward to it. Question one. As a child, what did you dream of being when you grew up? So that's an interesting question. So I think it was a mixture of things. So it was an astronaut, a champion water skier, or a prime minister. Wow, I love that. So my parents were very can-do sort of people. and. Having a deaf child, I think it was really important to them that the message that they gave me was to dream and think that anything was possible. And I actually think that my role at the National Deaf Children's Society encompasses elements of all of those. So, yeah, that's, that's what I think I wanted to do when I was a child. That's brilliant. Question two, what would you say is your professional superpower? So I think definitely being a lip reader is my professional superpower. And lip reading is a hard skill. It's not something that you can learn, but it's a huge advantage in many situations because you really do have to pay attention to what people are saying. You have to look at them carefully and you pick up all sorts of cues as a result. That's so true, Susan. I love that you're saying essentially being deaf and being therefore a lip reader is your superpower. That's beautiful. Question three, what is a new perspective that all of the events of 2020 has given you? I mean, I think many people might say this, but for me, it's been the importance of family and friends and being um, locked down with my daughters who both are in their early 20s has just been a real pleasure And I think as a family, we've got time that we never expected to have together. So when I look back on this time, 
third thing that I'm going to remember the most about this time. Obviously, there's all the work aspects to it. But I think having that time, the four of us together, has just been an absolute joy. Yes, that's so true. It's so important to treasure those family moments. And hopefully, while you were with family, you had some time for entertainment, which lends itself to the next question. What was your favourite TV show during lockdown? So it was actually The Queen's Gambit. So that's a tale of a young woman who finds chess in an orphanage that she's in and becomes the grandmaster and beats all these guys along the way. So it's a fantastic show because there are themes of adoption, addiction, grief, grit and resilience and fantastic acting, amazing clothes and a great storyline with something for everyone. So I thoroughly recommend it. Excellent. It's not one I've seen yet, Susan, so I shall definitely be watching it now that you have said all of that. Our final icebreaker question. If you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? So it's a woman called Irina Sandorova, and she was a Polish social worker who saved over 2,000 Jewish babies and children from Nazi death camps in the Polish Warsaw Ghetto. So her story is not particularly well known, and she was just an ordinary woman. So she organised a team of social workers to smuggle children out to safety by hiding them in ambulances, in trolleys, in suitcases, taking them through sewer pipes, out of the ghetto into the non-Jewish areas. And then she changed the identity of the children that she rescued and placed them with Polish families. And I just think that's an amazing story because she was just an ordinary person who was doing extraordinary things. Wow. Yes, I really like that. And what would you like to ask her? So my question to her would have been, so what gave you the strength to be so brave and put your life on the line in that way? Because I think everyone aspires to be that brave, but when it actually comes to it, would you be? So that would be my question. Mm, that's a brilliant question and really one that gives you pause for thought. So Susan, you are the chief executive of the National Deaf Children's Society and you have been their CEO for an incredible 28 years, coming on 29 years, I believe. And I'd like to start off by hearing about the organisation and its mission and vision. So tell us what you do at the National Deaf Children's Society. Yeah, it's a fantastic organisation. So it was actually founded by a group of parents in 1944 when bombs were dropping in London during the Blitz. So a group of parents came together because they wanted their deaf children to benefit from the new Butler Education Act that meant that all children would be able to go through to secondary education. So that up until that time, children had finished at primary and only those that were wealthy enough could go on to secondary education. So this group of parents met in a flat in London because they wanted their children to be educated beyond primary. And I think that's just a fantastic story because it shows the power of people coming together, having that kind of vision and a very clear idea about what they wanted to do. So it was founded in, in 1944 and it initially started as a group groups of parents coming together across the country. 
And then it wasn't until the early 50s that one incredibly charismatic woman who was a journalist and the mother of a deaf child brought those disparate societies together as one national organisation, which is where the National Deaf Children's Society was born. So our vision is a world without barriers for every deaf child, with a particular focus on the social and educational barriers that hold deaf children back. And so those founding principles of the charity around parents coming together to support each other, but advocating for change is something which is still very much at the heart of what we're about. So we remain true to the founding principles, but within a completely different context and environment. So I understand that there are around 50,000 deaf children in the UK and about 34 million deaf children worldwide. And as you spoke about there, that a lot of the work of the National Deaf Children's Society is really rooted in challenging assumptions about what a deaf child's future can look like. In your experience, Susan, what is an assumption that hearing able people make about deaf people that you would really like to challenge or change? So I think what we find is there's a culture of low expectations, particularly amongst professionals that work with deaf children and their families, but also to a degree from parents themselves. And our job as an organisation is really to challenge that culture of low expectations and make every parent feel that their child has got the same opportunities as other children do. So we put a lot of focus on one area in particular around reducing the attainment gap. So there are two grades difference between the attainment of a, a deaf child and a hearing child. And deafness isn't a learning difficulty. So there's absolutely no reason why deaf children shouldn't succeed just in the same way as their peers do. So that's a huge challenge for us as an organisation. And I think we are getting there. So now the Department for Education doesn't say that the reason why deaf children are not doing so well in their GCSEs is just because that's the way it is. So we've managed to change the language that's used by the Department for Education in particular. And we are challenged those expectations, but there is still some way to go. So if we can, you know, we can really address that and make sure that we reduce the attainment gap and eliminate it entirely then I think we're well in the in the right direction with that regard. Yes, that's so important what you spoke about there, Susan, and in terms of expectations and also the expectations that the deaf children have for themselves and their own lives and their own aspirations. So it's great to hear that some progress is being made with the DFE. But how do you find that this message is trickling down with respect to actually teachers and what's happening in schools yeah I mean this does take on us on to the whole sort of pandemic and the impact that that's had on deaf families Mm. so obviously schools are closed at the moment so that'd been a, a whole scale move to online learning and what I think people just don't appreciate is the huge challenge that presents to deaf children so although a small proportion of those children will use sign language, they will all be using visual information to some degree. So being able to, to see the person that's teaching, being able to see the other children in the classroom, whether it's face-to-face or virtually, 
it's crucial. So we really need to get the message out there to teachers. 87% of deaf children are in mainstream classes. So the vast majority could be the only deaf child in their class or let alone in the school. So a lot of people have got this assumption that deaf children are in special schools and actually that's not the case. The most, most of them are in mainstream schools. So we need teachers to be aware of how to teach those children, but also to understand that they need to meet the needs of individual deaf children. And it's not difficult. The National Deaf Children's Society, we've got a plethora of resources that teachers can access to support them in teaching deaf children effectively. So talking a bit more about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and what the impact has been on the deaf community more widely, certainly in the very first lockdown last March, it seemed like the government had not really considered the needs of disabled people in their pandemic response. And now here we are again, nearly a year later, in the middle of lockdown three. Has much changed in terms of government policy and provision now, do you think? So when the Coronavirus Act was passed in March 2020, it gave powers to central and local government to effectively reduce the rights of disabled people around education, care and mental health. Wow. That was the only group of people that had their rights diminished under that act. And also local authorities for a short period of time were able to suspend a child's statement or what's now called the Educational Health and Care Plan. So that's a bit of an example of how the coronavirus impacted initially on disabled people generally. Now, obviously, and this is a horribly overused term, it was a very unprecedented time. And so some actions were taken to try and deal with that. We are talking about now what's almost a year ago. So our job has been to make sure that deaf children haven't lost out during the pandemic. So the move particularly to online learning is something that we've been having to fight hard on to make sure that families know that they can go back to schools and get them to think about the individual child. And then the whole thing around face masks have been a huge Mm. So when schools were operating, and we hope schools will be going back from March the 8th, you know, that we really want to see all children back at school and we want to see deaf children back at school more than ever because they lose out so much on all of that incidental learning, interaction with their peers, as well as learning itself. But if they're going to be wearing face masks in schools, you know, parents are caught between keeping their child at home or sending them back into school and not being able to understand anything that's going on. So what we're saying to local authorities, what we're saying to national government is that you need to think about the needs of individual children, talk to the child, talk to the family, bring in specialist teachers of the deaf, and they can then help the school navigate what needs to be done to meet the needs of that child. And do you feel that the government is listening? Have you had much traction in in terms of your response so far? So we've received an assurance from the Minister of State that the new guidance will continue information about transparent face masks. So that's a step forward. But what we need to see is that promise delivered through the guidance. 
So again, it's going in the right direction. We've had that assurance, but it's just getting that promise actually delivered in writing. It needs to be the next step in all of this. The other thing which also impacted on, on deaf children and their families during the pandemic was at, at the beginning, audiology services. So screening, as you might know, every single baby has their hearing screened before they leave that maternity ward. And that was a campaign that the National Deaf Children's Society bought and won. And so screening was rolled out across the UK in 2006. So something that we're immensely proud of having achieved. But it was the case that screening carried on to a degree, but then children weren't being referred to audiology department if they needed further testing. Because a lot of audiologists were redeployed to the front line to support coronavirus wards and so on. So that meant now there was a huge backlog in terms of audiology appointments. So parents were being referred to audiology. They would have a confirmation of deafness, but then it wasn't necessarily the case that their child's hearing aids would be fitted. And so there's now been that backlog and audiology services have got to play catch up. Professionals have been working flat out to support families. So it's not their choice but obviously it's had a huge impact on, on many, many families with tiny babies where they haven't got the diagnosis and the hearing technology support that they might need. Of course, and that's hugely troubling for new parents. You've just had a new baby. You've been told that they've got some issues with hearing, and but you're just waiting in limbo until further tests or, or treatment or, or indeed hearing aids, etc. can be provided. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's gradually coming back on track. But obviously, every lockdown has a, a, a sort of further impact on those waiting lists and on the backlog. Yes. So how has the National Deaf Children's Society had to pivot or change its own offering during the crisis? Yeah, so like many organisations, we were becoming increasingly digital. So there was a whole direction of travel, which I think has been accelerated by the pandemic. So we moved all of our services online, both for parents, for young people, and also for professionals. So for example, we run sessions for families with newly identified deaf children to, to bring them together with our staff and with professionals to provide that support from the moment that they find they have a deaf child. That kind of what used to be a family weekend has now gone online. We provide support to families one-to-one -one through our network of family officers around the country. That's also gone online. What we found is the take-up has been phenomenal. So we've had a fourfold increase in uptake of these services online. So that's something which we will now never step away from because what it's done is it's equalised the playing field between families that can reach sort of urban areas easier from those that are in more rural areas or a very long way from any form of public transport. So by providing services online, you really have leveled that playing field. And that's something which has been hugely beneficial. So that is something that we're going to continue with, whilst always keeping in mind those families for whom it is really challenging to access our services digitally. So the, you know, the definition of digital poverty are those families that don't have the kit, that can't access the broadband or don't have the skills and wherewithal to be able to do so. And so 
there are families in that situation. So our job is to make sure that we reach out to them. And for those families, there will be face-to-face services, which we will continue to deliver. But for the vast majority of them, we will continue with our digital offering. Yes, certainly the increase in access to services is something that a number of chief execs that I've been speaking with have said is a real positive having come out of this pandemic and the crisis during 2020 and the acceleration of digital adoption uh, is certainly seen as a positive as well. Are there any other positives that you would take from this crisis? So I think in a strange sort of way, obviously all of our staff, so 250 staff have been working from home, literally it happened overnight. So our IT team just worked flat out to get everybody operating from home. And that equal playing field, which I referred to earlier, also applies to our staff. So we had a situation where our London office, half of our staff are based in London, a quarter were home-based prior to the pandemic, and then the rest were in our offices around the country. And also we have a, a small network of consultants who work for us through Deaf Child Worldwide, which is the international arm of the National Deaf Children's Society. So what it's done, because everyone's working from home, is that separation from those people that are home-based or working in an office in Birmingham or Cardiff or Belfast, they now are on the same, working on the same basis as the staff who were in London. So I think there's been a lot more cross-fertilisation between staff in different teams and staff across the organisation. So I think that has been a real benefit. And I think we've been able to operate in a more agile fashion as a result. So there have been some definite positives for the organisation. And I think also our trustee body has been fantastic during this time. So they've been there, come in when needed, but also understanding that our planning has to change and we all have to operate quite differently. So, yeah, I think some distinct positives. Susan, I'd like to talk now about a report that Akivo recently published. So Akivo is the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations. And this report is called Hidden Leaders, Disability Leadership in Civil Society. It was produced by consultant Zara Todd and Ellie Monroe. Broadly speaking, the report looks at what needs to be considered in order to embed disability-inclusive practices in organisations and some of the challenges around this that exist in civil society and across society more widely. So as somebody who identifies as a leader who happens to be deaf yourself, what did you think of this report and how big a challenge is this? So I think it's a great report and obviously very long overdue, very fascinating to read it, both in terms of my own perspective as a leader who is deaf, but also thinking more widely across the sector. So what I did find very interesting, and this chimes with some of what we've been told by the young deaf people that we work with. So the focus of our strategy is around early years, but also transitions and independence. So we work with young people and help them to be ready for the world of work. So what the report says is that 
the vast majority of what they define as out disabled leaders in society are actually associated with disability focused charities or disabled people's organizations. And then they go on to say, as part of this research, we tried to identify disabled leaders in civil society who were not associated with disability work and we struggled. So I think that really says it all. And it's, it says two things. It's about how reluctant people are who have disabilities to come out with it because they're worried that it's going to impact on their ability to apply for leadership roles within the sector, but also impact on the way in which they're seen and they get mm. cast into a disability organisation. So speaking from my own experience, I mean, obviously, I chose to work for the National Deaf Children's Society because it's a cause I believe in passionately. And having grown up as a deaf child, I absolutely get what what it is we're trying to do. So I think that's that's fine if disabled people want to be in disability organisation. What it's not okay about is if they then can't go beyond that if that's something that they wish to do. And that's, I think, where the challenge is for Akivo and for the voluntary sector generally. How do we stop people seeing running a disability organisation as something which is completely distinct and different as opposed to running any organisation? Because the skills that you learn as a leader running an organisation for disabled people or a disability organisation are the same skills that you need to run any form of organisation. And that's the message I think we need to get across. Yes, you described to me as we were chatting earlier, Susan, that you identify yourself as a leader first and foremost, uh, who just happens to be deaf. And I think the distinction that you made there is really important, that it was your active choice to get involved with the National Deaf Children's Society because you felt really strongly connected to that cause. But that was your choice. And somebody else might want to choose differently, but actually they are unable to because the opportunities don't exist or indeed they are pigeonholed or, as you said, typecast into being just seen from one dimension or one perspective. So What do you think leaders in the sector and indeed any listeners of this podcast who may not be aware of some of these issues, what do people need to consider in building more disability inclusive approaches in their organisations? And are there any recommendations in the report that really stand out to you in this context? Well, I think there are all sorts of aspects in it. So the report talks about the need for data. So it was actually very difficult to find out who um, the disabled people are in in the sector. So that was one thing that's clearly needed. We also need to try and encourage people to disclose the fact that they have a disability. And as I said earlier, we found that young deaf people are very reluctant when they're applying for their first job to say that they're deaf because they're really worried about the impact that they will have on even getting an interview. So you can understand if that sort of prevalent culture exists, that people are not going to come forward and say that they have any form of disability. So we need to get over that. We need to make sure that organisations are disability aware, deaf aware, know what that means in practice, what they have to do. So people do think about sometimes disability, about being about ramps 
and wheelchairs, but it's far, far broader than that. So obviously it's so important that we provide awareness training for the sector. So we, we really expand what we mean by diversity and inclusion training to incorporate disability. And then we need, we need disabled leaders to be as visible as possible so that young disabled people going into the sector see those of us that are heading up our organisation to the people that potentially could be role models. So the whole thing around mentoring, I think there's a lot more that we can do across the sector to support young disabled people coming up through the ranks. Absolutely. And indeed, perhaps more wider adoption of the social model of disability that I know the report talks to as well. And for listeners who are not aware of this, this social model essentially says that it is society's structures and systems that put obstacles in the way of disabled people from fully participating in society. And it is not their physical impairment or condition that is the challenge. Yes, I think I sort of live and breathe the social model of disability. So, yes, for me, I sort of take that for granted. And that's very much the way the National Deaf Children's Society operates. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely crucial to ensure that that's sort of embedded in the way in which we all work. Yes. So, Susan, I'd love to hear a bit more about your own personal story and personal journey, if you like, with the National Deaf Children's Society. You joined back in 1992. And since then, you've overseen really tremendous income growth from, I believe it was 1 million back in 92 to about 24 million pounds in 2019. So can you talk to how perhaps both the organisation and yourself as a leader has evolved over these past nearly three decades? Yes. So when I joined the National Deaf Children's Society, I came from a background in service delivery and policy and campaigning. I'd actually worked at the Royal National Institute for the Deaf before that. And prior to that, I was actually a lecturer in deaf education. So my background had been in service delivery, policy and campaigning, but I also did a lot of fundraising in my previous role. And I think that was all very fortunate because all of that experience meant that when I applied for the role at the National Deaf Children's Society, I had elements of what was required for, at that time, was a much smaller organisation. But I think I was also fortunate because it was a time when the trustee board was starting to think about the way in which they wanted the organisation to be represented. And I'm sure having the lived experience of being deaf didn't hurt. And I think I probably brought a, a lot of passion for the cause and a real understanding of what it was that needed to be done. And because I had that fundraising experience, I really wanted to grow the organisation. And so what's so important about growing an organisation, it's not about the income, it's about the range of services that you can provide as a result. When I started, we, we were very dependent on legacy income. I think that made up the bulk of that million pounds. We had one fundraiser, who was doing trust and statutory fundraising. And I persuaded the trustee board to invest in a director of fundraising and was very, was very fortunate in managing to recruit a very talented guy who then became our director of fundraising. And we invested in fundraising because 
we believed that that was the only way that the organization would develop its range of services. So the first thing we got the lottery funding for a helpline and then for a network of family officers. And then it went from there. And the other thing, really, really important thing to stress as well, is that as the organization grew and became more complex, we also looked at our governance structures. So you have to grow your infrastructure as you grow your organization. You can't be left with the same infrastructure as an organization grows as when you were a much smaller organization. So our governance had gone through quite a period of change since the time that I started. So our chair and vice chair are parents of deaf children and the majority of trustees are parents of deaf children, but they are recruited for the skills and experience that they can bring to govern what is now a complex organization with an international wing. So in terms of the the growth of the organization, we tried to grow our services, grow our campaigning. So NDCS is very proudly an organization which provides services, but also campaigns for change. And our governance has reflected the increasing complexity of the charity. I think there's a tendency in the sector to focus growth solely around income or certainly see it in terms of income. And you're so right that the focus needs to be actually on impact and how do you create the structures for that impact to essentially grow and be sustainable in the longer term. And Susan, you spoke about governance there. And I know that you have a a number of governance roles that are actually external to the charity. So you were a former Commissioner of the Disability Rights Commission. You are a member of the BBC Appeals Advisory Committee, Chair of Groundbreakers. And it indeed, it is through the Groundbreakers Network for female CEOs that you and I first met. So tell us about some of this work that you've been involved with, perhaps starting with Groundbreakers. Yes, so I can't claim the credit for establishing Groundbreakers. It was actually set up by Dorothy Dalton, who's the former CEO of what was at Akembo, and Geraldine Peacock, who was the CEO at Guide Dogs for the Blind. So I came in a little bit later, but it is something that I really believe passionately in because it's about developing the leadership, the female leadership for the sector. And I think all of us have that responsibility to bring young people with us. So it's that concept of having a ladder and not drawing it up behind you you absolutely have to keep it there and enable women, young women to get their, you know, their foot on that rung and bring them up with you. And that's really what Groundbreakers is about. So it's a very informal network, but I think it's that opportunity for people to come together from different areas. That chance conversation has led to some great things. You know, you and I meeting came as a result of Groundbreakers and What's been fascinating, again, of course, is that because we've had to have all our meetings online, we've we've seen more people attend our sessions than ever before. So the recent one with Polly Neat, who's the CEO of Shelter, fantastic presentation about visible leadership. We had over 100 women joining us from small to large organisations. So it's that impact that we can have of showing young women what's possible and something which I 
can't overestimate how important I think that is. So I have two daughters myself and I want I want those opportunities for them in whatever sector that they want to work in and for all the young women that we we work with because there are there's some brilliant talent out there and we just need to harness it. You're so right. Representation is absolutely crucial uh, and showing what is possible and what expectations you can have for your own life. And this is coming back to expectations and, and how you, you set high aspirations for yourself, for, for your children, for your organizations. So looking back at your own leadership journey, Susan, what advice would you give to yourself on day one of first becoming CEO? So I think looking back, there are things that I really wish I'd known. So the advice I would give myself if I had my time again was to focus on the big picture, choose my battles, and when in doubt or stuck on something, seek advice from those who are wiser and more knowledgeable than myself. And I think in our sector, we are really fortunate because there are so many people out there that give generously of their time. So we can always go to people who have been there and done it and seek that advice. What would you say is the best thing about being the CEO of the National Deaf Children's Society? It's just seeing the impact that we have, seeing the really transformational impact that we have on the lives of deaf children and their families, hearing those stories from children, young people about the difference that being involved in the charity has made to them. Seeing um, our young people's advisory board interview Keir Starmer, seeing a young person chase the prime minister into a lift at the Conservative Party conference and buttonhole him and ask him some questions about what he was doing to change services for deaf children. Brilliant. Seeing those people be so confident in their ability to to challenge politicians and get change. That's definitely been the best thing and is the best thing about being CEO of the National Deaf Children's Society. I love that. And I love what you said earlier in terms of really holding the mission and vision sort of central to, to everything you do is so vital. So Susan, in closing, do you have any final thoughts or reflections that you would like to share with listeners? What is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? So I think it is always about that overall vision of what you're trying to achieve and not straying from that. So sometimes it is easy to get distracted, whether it's funding opportunities, whether it's something that comes along that seems superfluously interesting to go off on one track. It's always about coming back to what we're here to do and keeping that sort of centre of mind. So with that, that vision, that focus, I don't think we can go wrong. Absolutely. I think that's our job as CEOs, certainly to keep the organisation and everybody on that path in terms of pursuing the real vision, mission and purpose of the organisation. Susan, it's been such a delight speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. It was so inspiring to chat with the lovely Susan Daniels, Chief Executive of the National Deaf Children's Society. Susan's experiences and comments have really made me reflect on how we, as voluntary sector leaders, 
and as a society more broadly, need to do much, much more to shift the dial and make progress towards being truly disability inclusive. And it starts with listening and challenging the status quo. My next guest is the wonderful Girish Menon, who has recently taken the helm at Stir Education. Hit that subscribe button now and the episode will automatically download when released. I am so grateful to all of our followers and listeners who helped the show reach the top of the Apple Podcast rankings for the non-profit podcast category. It is such an incredible endorsement of our content and the rankings and reviews really make a difference because they enable more people to find and listen to the podcast. So if you enjoyed the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast app and consider leaving us a five-star review. Visit our website, thecharityceo.com, for full show details and to submit suggestions or questions for future guests. Thank you for listening. Thank you.